Welcome to Palmdale United Methodist Church's podcast for Sunday, July 12th, 2020. May God use this as a blessing to you today. Let us pray. Oh God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, you who are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Boardpanda.com had a delightful article. I saw this about a month ago, and I knew that I had to share it with you at some point during this upcoming series on masterpieces. It's, a, it's about a group on Facebook that started three years ago when two longtime friends, Becky and Laura, started commenting on some really, really bad art uh, that Laura found in a thrift shop. In fact, she posted it on her Facebook page, and it got so many comments that they decided to create an entire Facebook page just dedicated to bad art that you can find at charity thrift shops. Well, then the coronavirus pandemic uh, forced people to stay home, and so they weren't uh, as likely to wander around thrift shops. So the group's activity saw a decrease until someone had this genius idea. One person decided to try and recreate some of the art that they saw on that Facebook page from their own home. And this prompted a new and hilarious trend that not only brought the page back to life, but also sent its activity stats skyrocketing. Here are just a few of my favorites. Gotta love the hair. Now, if you look closely at this one, I think the original piece of bad art was a woman who painted a self-portrait and then took a picture of herself holding the aforementioned self-portrait. Uh, I think this woman did an amazing job uh, of imitating that. Nothing like an old sea dog. If you look closely uh, on the right, this is a, a picture of a person who is actually lying down to form the ostrich neck and legs with her own legs and one arm. It's very creative. Love the makeup and eyes on this recreated llama. Kind of scary, uh, but still very well done. And I just laugh every time I see this picture. Uh, It's just too good. I think this was an attempt to copy the 17th century painting, The Girl with the Pearl Earring by Johannes Vermeer, uh, but it's kind of scary. Both are kind of scary. Speaking of classic paintings, this is the Mona Leslie. It's a Mona Lisa's country cousin. Just no words uh, for this one. And I love the creativity about how this guy recreated this one, holding a TV of the picture of someone who is a ballerina. I think this person nailed the dog recreation, don't you? And speaking of dogs, uh, what do you think of this one? (laughs) Personally, I think this one is even better. Don't know what they gave the dog right before the picture, but it's classic. So, welcome to the third week in our series, Masterpiece, the spirituality behind classic works of art. And each week for a month, we're looking at a different masterpiece in the art world. We're taking a little bit of time to get to know the artist that created it, the circumstances around how the piece itself uh, was created, and then we're, we're tying it to a deeper spiritual truth, spiritual, 
theological, spiritual, that's what you get when you combine the two, spirological, uh, spiritual truth as we seek to connect each piece of art to some uh, eternal truth that we find in Scripture. Uh, this week, we are looking at Edvard Munch's 1893 iconic work, The Scream. Now, I wouldn't liken it to uh, the bad art of thrift shops that we just saw at the start of the sermon, but there have been tons of cultural appropriations of Monk's painting. Andy Warhol created a piece called The Scream after Munich. Filmmaker Wes Craven created a whole movie franchise that began in 1993 with the movie Scream, and four films later has brought in over $600 million at the box office. Macaulay Culkin's character, Kevin McAllister, recreated the, the pose uh, in the 1990 film Home Alone. I mean, even Scooby-Doo, Homer Simpson, and a character from Doctor Who named The Silence have all appropriated portions of Monk's famous painting. Not to mention the fact that everybody loves emojis, right? They're uber popular these days with texting and social media. I think the screen may be the only work of art that has its own emoji. You know you've arrived when they give you an emoji. Now, let's get to know the artist himself, Edvard Munch. Born in Lotten, Norway on December 12, 1863, Edvard Munch was the second of five children to Christian Munch and Laura Catherine Bjolstad. His family relocated to Oslo in Norway a year later, and when he was just five years old, his mother died of tuberculosis the same year that his younger sister, Inger Marie, was born. Within a decade, his favorite sister, Sophie, just one year older than him, and a gifted young artist herself, also died of tuberculosis. Her younger sister, his younger sister, suffered mental health issues and was eventually admitted into an asylum. And while his tyrannical father, a doctor and conservative Christian, was prone to fits of rage, his only brother died of pneumonia at the age of 30. Later in his life, he would reflect back on these events and write, Illness, insanity, and death were the black angels that kept watch over my cradle and accompanied me all of my life. A frail child himself, Monk's <clears throat> immune system was little match for the harsh Scandinavian winters, and frequent illnesses kept him out of school for months on end. His father would read to his children the ghost stories of Edgar Allan Poe, as well as lessons in history and religion. So you can imagine it instilled in Edvard at a very young age a general sense of anxiety about and morbid fascination with death. To pass the time, Monk took up drawing and watercolor painting, and art became a steady preoccupation for Edvard during his teen years. In 1881, he enrolled at the Royal School of Art and Design, and art officially became his life. He even received a scholarship and traveled to Paris, where he spent three weeks studying the amazing art that was taking place in that city at that time. And after returning to Oslo, he began working on new paintings, one of which was this, The Sick Child, which he would finish in 1886, a tribute to his older sister, Sophie. It had been almost nine years since her death. In 1889, his father passed away in a traumatic event that instilled in the artist a newfound interest in spirituality and symbolism. He painted this picture of a practically empty room, night in St. Cloud in 1890, which served as a memorial to his father. 
Monk never married, but he often portrayed relationships between men and women that were filled with tension, like this piece entitled Two Human Beings. Notice each figure standing alone, the gulf that is between them so visible. At one point he wrote, no longer shall I paint interiors with men reading and women knitting. I will paint living people who breathe and feel and suffer and love. From 1889 to 1892, Monk lived mainly in France, funded by state scholarships and embarked on the most productive as well as the most troubled period of his artistic life. It was during this period that Monk undertook a series of paintings he called The Freeze of Life ultimately encompassing 22 works for a 1902 exhibition in Berlin. The paintings included such titles as Despair, Melancholy, that's the one pictured here, Anxiety, Jealousy, and our feature work for today, The Scream. Monk's mental state was on full display, and his style varied greatly, depending on which emotion had taken hold of him at that time. The collection was a huge success, and Edvard soon became known in the art world. Now, I'll move quickly through the rest of his life for the sake of time. Monk uh, liked to live a bohemian lifestyle of excessive drinking and brawling, and eventually the pain and anxiety caused by the loss of his sister and mother and father all took its toll. In 1908, Monk was admitted to a hospital in Copenhagen for nervous breakdown. There, for eight months, he was subject to a strict diet and electrification regiment. While hospitalized, Monk created a lithograph series called the Alpha and the Omega, depicting the artist's relationship with various friends and enemies. He was released from the hospital the following year and advised by his doctor to return to Norway and lead a quiet life in isolation. He continued to paint on up until his death in 1944. But the scream, that's the piece that we're focusing on today. In 1892, Monk had been out for a walk at sunset when suddenly uh, the setting sunlight turned the clouds a blood red, as he called it, almost as if it were bloody, volcanic, and atmospheric rupture in the fabric of reality itself. Here's how he put it. Then it seemed as if a flaming sword of blood slashed through the heaven's vault. The air became like blood with piercing strands of fire. The fjord glared in cold blue, yellow, and red colors. Bloody red screeched on the road and on the railing. My friend's faces turned glaring yellow-white. This is the moment he depicts in his piece, Sick Mood at Sunset, Despair, 1892. Jonathan Jones, in his January 2019 article for TheGuardian.com, writes, In this painting, we see his anguish from the outside. The sky is gory, but, but it's in the closed mind of the man brooding with his face turned away from us that it feels like the end of the world. We see his despair, but his despair is not ours. The following year, Monk obliterated that gap between actor and audience, artwork and onlooker, and created the first of his versions of The Scream. Monk simplified his vision of the, of the nightmare sunset into bands and nodules of color, almost looking like it's made out of wood grain, doesn't it? But most radically, he replaced the brooding man with a figure that has no identifiable gender, 
and he may even be a ghost or a ghoul. The figure doesn't look directly at the sky, but at us, because it is us. Monk would say later that he was trying to represent an infinite scream passing through nature, that he felt that fateful night at sunset. Monk created two versions in paint and two versions in pastel, as well as a lithograph stone from which several prints still survive. One of the pastels, in fact, the only one of the four that's in a private uh, possession, was recently put up for auction at Sotheby's, which sold for $120 million. Let's watch. So now the world record for any work of art sold at auction is this painting, Edward Munch's The Scream, and it made with buyer's premium $119,900,000. This is probably the greatest, most disseminated image I can think of in the world of, a, of an artwork. It is a universal image of anxiety, suffering, the response to the modern age throughout the 20th century. Uh, events have occurred that have shown Munch in 1895 really presaged, uh, you know, all the turmoil and violence that would come. People just respond so viscerally and personally uh, to this. The, the world uh, sometimes is too enormous, uh, too challenging at times. From the standpoint of the auction, it's the only one that could ever be sold. It's the only one of the four that's in private hands. Uh, it is also the only piece that is in the artist's original frame. There's a plaque at the bottom, which in his own handwriting uh, describes the moment when he conceived this piece. He was walking across the bridge. You see his friends ahead of him. He felt dead tired. He couldn't move further. The sky was blazing red and orange in a sunset. And then he says, I heard the great shriek of nature. Everyone believes the figure is screaming, but really what's happening is the figure is reacting, recoiling uh, from the noise of the world. Uh, and also, amongst the four versions, this is the one with the greatest brilliance of color. Uh, these strong, vibrant primary colors and rich caking on of the pastel surface. Uh, each one has their unique characters. This is a universal image of anxiety, suffering, and the response to the modern age, said the Sotheby's former vice chair, David Norman. I mean, there's something about this piece that just connects with so many of us, isn't it? 2020 has already been a crazy year, and dang, we're only halfway through this year. Here are some of the memes uh, that I found on the internet that give a sense of what this year has been like. Uh, how I feel this far about 2020? Uh, restart. Yeah, definitely. Um, a quick summary of 2020 so far. Notice the helicopter's landing gear is not with the vehicle that has left the ground. Halftime at Sunday Night Football, Earth Zero, the year 2020-42. And this great commentary, yeah, they had us in the first half, I I'm not going to lie. <laughs> uh, time Traveler, what year is it? Me, 2020. Yeah, that's pretty much the face that everyone will make when they look back at the year 2020. It has been a horrible start to this year. But it's not just the COVID-19 pandemic that has many of us reenacting the screen. We can look past uh, our past history. How many deadly wars can we name 
just in the last 100 years. Or, or genocides. Nazi Germany, Cambodia, Darfur, Rwanda, I could go on and on. And we haven't done a very good job about being good stewards of this creation that God has given us either, have we? As a nation, we're, we're having to come to grips with the systemic racism that has plagued us for centuries. It's troubling that we even have to state that black lives matter because for so long, black and other color of lives have not seemed to matter much by so many. And, and putting aside your, your own political feelings about the movement that bears that same name, you have to agree that our nation is in deep crisis right now. So yeah, this pretty much sums up where we are. Karl Barth, the famous Swiss Reformed theologian of the early 20th century, once said so famously, take your Bible and take your newspaper, read both, but interpret your newspapers from your Bible. So before we get bogged down in depression, anxiety, and an overall sense of, we are going to turn to our Bibles, to the New Testament, book of Romans, chapter 8, beginning at verse 18. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. I mean, this is no hot take or anything, but nobody likes suffering, right? Nobody. And yet it has been around since the beginning of time. Just ask Adam and Eve post-serpent. Our actions as human beings, by and large, have led to decay in so many areas, including our environment. And, and definitely that's not the way that God envisioned this world to go when God created us male and female, in God's image. But God has a plan. Verse 22, we know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. All the mothers listening today know exactly what Paul is talking about, right? When he mentions labor pains and groaning. The kingdom of God is coming, friends. God's plan for this world where all humanity lives together in peace and harmony, where nation does not lift up sword against nation, where creation itself is cared for with integrity and authenticity, that is coming. And while we wait for this transformation... We are all groaning together as we recognize the many instances that it is not a present reality just yet. Paul mentions the first fruits of the Spirit. This expression refers to a first stage of God's gifts to us. Charles H. Talbert in his Smythe and Helvey's commentary on Romans mentions that this phrase sometimes refers to a sense of earnest money or a guarantee of what is to come. Sort of like a down payment or a pledge. Here's the first part, and then we will pay the rest later, or God will give us the rest later. So Paul saw through the Holy Spirit's presence in the lives of Christians uh, the first installment of which God guarantees the full payment 
of God's presence and eternity. What is that payment? Well, what's the gift that we have been given by God? Now, it's not that this life is evil and everything will be okay when we all die and go to heaven. I think that's a mistaken view that Christians have had over the years. No, Jesus, when he came, said, the kingdom of God is at hand. It's not in the future. It's not in the by and by. No, it's right here. That God is working to transform the world that we're living in here and now, and we have a role to play in helping that new creation come. N.T. Wright, in his New Interpreter's Bible Commentary on Romans, says this, Christians must be in the forefront of bringing in the present time signs and foretastes of God's eventual full healing to bear upon the created order in all the parts and at every level. Christians must be in the forefront of bringing in the present time signs and foretastes of God's healing justice to bear upon the world that is still full of corruption, injustice, oppression, oppression, division, suspicion, and war. See, friends, as followers of Jesus, we can't simply just mind our own business and wait for God to sort out this creation. No, the Bible is full of insight in how we, as God's people, are called to be agents of love and change and justice in this broken world. But I'll admit, it's a daunting task, isn't it? I mean, it's definitely overwhelming when we think about all that needs to be changed. And and just when we think we're getting somewhere, something happens and we feel like we've gone two steps backwards. Where do we even start? It's so overwhelming when we think that we are just weak, frail human beings. Verse 26 and 27. Paul says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we ought, but that very spirit intercedes with sighs too deep for words. And God, who searches the heart, knows what is the mind of the spirit, because the spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Anyone else feel like you don't exactly know what to pray sometimes, or or is it just me? Right? Welcome to the club. That's part of what it means to be human. One of my favorite storytellers and story collectors is Anthony DeMello. In his fabulous book, Taking Flight, he recounts this story. A cobbler came to Rabbi Isaac of Gare and said, tell me what I should do about my morning prayer. You see, my my customers are poor men who have only one pair of shoes, and so I pick up their shoes late in the evening and I work on them most through the night, and at dawn, there's still work to be done if the men are to have their shoes ready before they go back to work. Now, my question is, Rabbi, what's to be done about my morning prayer? Well, what have you been doing until now, the rabbi said. Well, sometimes I, I, I rush to the prayer quickly, and I, and I get back to my work, but, but then I feel bad about it, and at other times, I, I, I just let the hour go by. And then, too, I feel this sense of loss. And and every now and then, as I raise my hammer from the shoes, I can almost hear my heart sigh. What an unlucky man I am that I'm not able to make my morning prayer. And the rabbi said, if I were God, I would value that sigh more than any other prayer. Likewise, Paul says, the Spirit helps us. In our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we ought, but that very spirit intercedes 
with sighs too deep for words. You see, we don't have to know the right things to say when we pray, friends. God knows us, God loves us, and God can interpret our sighs of pain and suffering and injustice and anger as we deal with what's happening in the world. The Holy Spirit sighs right alongside with us, and our deepest feelings and needs and passions are taken to the very throne of God. There's another story in DeMello's book, Taking Flight, that so wonderfully sums up how simple prayer can be. That sometimes we just make it too hard. This comes from the Hasidic community. Late one evening, a poor farmer on his way back to the, from the market found himself without his prayer book. The wheel of his cart had come off right in the middle of the woods, and it distressed him that this day should pass without him having to say his prayers. So, this is the prayer he made. Uh, I have done something foolish, Lord. I, I came away from home this morning without my prayer book, and my memory is such that I cannot recite a single prayer without it. So, this is what I'm going to do. <clears throat> I shall recite the alphabet five times, very slowly, and you, to whom all prayers are known, you can put the letters together to form the prayers that I can't remember. And the Lord said to his angels, of all the prayers I have heard today, this one was undoubtedly the best, because it came from a heart that was simple and sincere. Friends, prayer can be as simple as that, reciting the alphabet and letting God put the words together. This world is far from perfect. In fact, it's so overwhelmingly broken and unjust that at times it makes you just want to scream, doesn't it? But as people of faith, we can be part of that change. We can be part of the solution. We can help usher in God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. One more story, and I'll call it a morning. Frank Rogers Jr., in his wonderful book, Compassion and Practice, The Way of Jesus, tells this true story. Mwanda's eyes bore her witness as much as her body. She knelt in the back of the church in prayer. Her eyes stared at the floor. Mwanda was nearing 80 years old. And during most of her adult life, she lived within the brutal dictatorship that held uh, the poor hostage in Zimbabwe. She endured it all without protest, the withering farmlands, the pilfering of goods by thugs, the rumors of torture camps run by corrupt police uh, squads. She survived compliantly until her husband and son were arrested in the middle of the night and driven away in hoods never to be seen again. In response, Moanda organized a weekly vigil each Friday afternoon at the police station. Beatings, taunting, public strip searches, they did not deter her. She mobilized those she could, if not to revolt, then at least to witness and to protest alongside with her. Moanda, along with 20 other women, came to the church that Sunday morning straight from jail. She and the other women had been arrested Friday night at the weekly vigil. The police kept them in jail for two days without food and released them only after a pastor had intervened, promising to ask the women to suspend their vigils. Moanda had earned her weariness. Both body and soul had been battered through months of resistance. And in that moment, 
even if she didn't have the strength to pray, she could at least kneel and rest. But then the music began, a mix of indigenous folk songs, Christian praise choruses, and African civil rights anthems. The congregation clapped and swayed softly at first, but as is customary in Zimbabwean worship, the rhythm grew stronger, the clapping became a whooping, and the swaying became dancing. The, uh, the music filled and surrounded everyone within its reach, including Moanda. And like healing oil seeping deeply into her aching joints, it soothed, restored, and emboldened not just her, but the entire assembly. Moanda rose and, buoyed by the community spirit, made her way to the pulpit. And once there, she swayed and clapped and sang until the music ran its course, and then she spoke. When I was in jail, one of the militia, a boy from our own community, asked me, why do you keep this up? You are old. You have no hope. We will beat you down until you cannot get up, and the vigils will come to an end. But I am telling you what I told him. I do it because the power within me is stronger than the power of this world. The world's power, all it knows is violence, fear, degradation. Its only strength is its lies. You are nobody. You can do nothing. You're just another body to be dumped on the heap of the forsaken and the forgotten. But I am telling you, there is a power greater than the power of this world. It is the power of the one who sides with the victimized. The power of the one who says, I hear the cries of the oppressed, and I will raise up the lowly. I will not let my children wail in pain alone. We are not nobody. We are children of God. We are not powerless. We can stand up for dignity and justice. We are not just bodies to be beaten in silence. We will rise up out of the grave, if necessary, to witness against this tyranny. They can kill our body, but they cannot kill our soul. They can beat our flesh. They cannot defeat our spirit. They can harass us, berate us, intimidate us, but they cannot rob us of this universal truth. The power in us does not die. It is the power of life. It is the power of freedom. It is the power of God. And nobody can take that away from us. Nobody. Two weeks later, after two more weeks of Friday night vigils, Mwanda disappeared from her home in the middle of the night. By noon the next day, the vigil at the police station exceeded the capacity to jail all the protesters. So the protest sang on. It still sings today. My brothers and sisters of faith, the power that is within us as followers of Jesus is stronger than any power of this world than anything that we see on the television or read in the papers or see on social media each night. And yes, we often want to scream when confronted with a lack of justice, peace, and kindness in the world, but fear not. Paul reminds us that God hears our sighs and groans, that God sighs and groans along with us, but that God is working to bring about God's kingdom on earth. So may we be active 
partners and participates, participants in the coming kingdom of God. May we every day work with the Holy One. And all God's people said,